Beautiful. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 16. This morning. And let's see here. I want to read verses 25 through 31. We'll look at more than that this morning, but let's read verses 25 through 31. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible here. But about midnight, Paul and Silas, who had been thrown into maximum security in the prison in Philippi, were praying and singing hymns of praise. They're in prison, but they're praising God. We're praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners, the other prisoners, were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he's responsible for the prisoners, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, that is the jailer, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the only place in the Bible that specific question. I'd say the ultimate question is asked. So the answer is extremely important. Verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved. You and your household, little boys, little girls, wives, daughters, cousins, employees, friends, if they believe, you will be saved, you and your household. Uh, when I hear the expression, Jesus is the answer, you've heard that. You see it on bumper stickers and billboards, etc. A couple things always come to mind. Uh, first, I know that a lot of veteran Sunday school teachers... I will tell you that three and four year olds who have grown up in good churches, uh, they think that Jesus is the answer to any question a teacher might ask in a Sunday school class. And so they will give you that answer every time. I mean, Jesus, the word. But, you know, the reality is, although history and the universe is Christ centered, some recognize that, some don't. Jesus isn't the answer to every possible question. I mean, if you said, what is the speed of light? The answer isn't Jesus. You might say Jesus engineered the speed of light before creation, but the answer would be 186,000 miles per second wouldn't be Jesus. If you ask someone, who's the 16th president of the United States? It wasn't Jesus. It was Abraham Lincoln, right? Or who's the first man to walk on the moon? The Neil Armstrong. So... Uh, it's not true that Jesus is the answer to every question. It is true that Jesus is the answer to the ultimate question. And we're going to see that this morning in our passage, Acts 16, verses 15 through 40. But first, let's, uh, we'll see the answer to that question. Let's uh, pray for our troops and our uh, peace officers and our firefighters. And also, let's pray we'll be teachable to God's word 
And uh, Stan, um, Heath, pray for us in that direction, would you please? Thank you, Stan. Uh, you know, I always like to say something kind of funny at the beginning to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. At least that's the reason I'll admit to. But uh, uh, two weeks ago, I did, there's the day after Thanksgiving, I did some Halloween jokes for kids. Now, last week I did the top seven list on things overheard at the uh, Channel Myers Farewell Fish Fry. But, you know, I was, I was reflecting on that recently. Uh, and I realized that when we did, uh, Shelby, when we did the um, Halloween jokes for kids, a lot of people actually laughed at the jokes, and it kind of threw me off because I wasn't used to that. But uh, I thought, you know, there's actually a lot more I could use, so uh, I won't do this every week. But just to warm up our capacity, you know, like uh, two weeks ago, one of the jokes was, why don't angry witches ride their brooms? And the answer is, they're afraid they'll fall off the handle. So that was the, the joke. Now, you've already heard that one, so of course you didn't laugh. But uh, it's not that funny. It's more ironic. But uh, let me give you a couple more. Uh, where do ghosts go for a swim? The Dead Sea. Homer swims around swim in the Dead Sea. Uh, when does a skeleton laugh? When does a skeleton laugh? When someone tickles his funny bone. Yeah. Good job. Uh, what does a skeleton order at a restaurant? Spare ribs. Yeah. Uh, what do ghosts mail home while on vacation? Ghost cards. Not postcards, but ghost cards. Uh, what song does Dracula hate? Here comes the sun. <clears throat> yeah. Where do most ghosts live? My favorite one. North and South Carolina. And the last one, hold your applause. Uh, what do you get when you cross a black cat with a lemon? Sourpuss, that's right. Okay, we're, we're warmed up now. Uh, we're in the, uh, in Acts 16, we're in the middle of the second missionary journey. Paul goes on three missionary journeys, taking the gospel, the good news that Christ is the Savior. Through faith in Him, we can have our sins forgiven and become children of God forever. All of the uh, missionary journeys start in Antioch of Syria, and the second missionary journey started when Paul and Silas left that wonderful city and revisited some of the places Paul had visited on his first missionary journey and had established churches. While in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas added a new helper. His name's Timothy. And then after some divine no's, and then a divine call in Troas, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke, who's writing Acts, joins the band in Troas. They go from Asia into Europe, and the first major city in Asia during the second missionary journey that was visited was the city of Philippi. And we talked about that last week, and we'll talk about it again uh, this week. Our passage this time breaks down into three units. Now, we looked at verses 11 through 14 specifically last time, and we saw that before anybody believes, God opens their heart to believe. He doesn't believe for them. He works consistently, persuasively, not coercively, but God is always the initiator of salvation. So we looked at the first couple of verses under the salvation of a businesswoman, but if you pull back, Ben, and look at the big terrain here of this passage, you see three different 
types of people are touched by the grace of God. First, we see a businesswoman, as we'll point out, she's got a large house. She's obviously making a lot of money. We'll see a slave girl who's penniless and who's been kind of, uh, um, what's, what's the, uh, the term we're using now for the unfortunate, usually women, human trafficking. She would kind of be the victim of a human trafficking group in Philippi. And then we're going to see the salvation of a prison guard. And we're actually going to focus on this, the prison guard, but we'll pick up with verse 15 and show you what we didn't mention last time as we remind you we're looking at the salvation of a businesswoman. Look at your Bible, chapter 16, verse 11 through 14. We looked at last week. We saw her come to faith as God opened her heart to respond to the gospel. And then verse 15, in the aftermath of her believing in Christ... We read this, and when she and her household, her family, and maybe even some business associates had been baptized as believers, uh, they, or excuse me, she urged us, see that? You got the first person uh, personal pronoun? Uh, that means Luke, who's writing Acts, is involved. He joins the band and he drops off at times, depending on what he's doing. He's a medical doctor. Paul probably leaves him behind some places to do medical work. But we've got Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke in Philippi. And their convert, Lydia, said, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, to really be a believer, and want to now express my faith, come into my house and stay. As long as you're here in Philippi during ministry, I want to be your base. I've got a large enough home with a couple extra bedrooms. I want you to stay, all four of you guys. And she prevailed upon us. Paul probably... Uh, kind of say, oh, that's, that's too much. You don't need to do that. But she talked him into it, kind of. So you're seeing all that as a fruit of her salvation. You don't get saved by showing hospitality to uh, missionaries or ministers, but that might be a good fruit of salvation in some cases. So that's the salvation of the businesswoman. Now let's look at verses 16 through 18, and we'll see the deliverance of a slave girl. Verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer... A slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her master's much profit, lots of money, by fortune telling. Following Paul and us, she kept crying out in public as they're walking in down the streets saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed. Now, one commentator says, testimony from such a source was not a desirable endorsement. And we'll describe uh, how that happened in the life of Christ a couple of times here in a minute. But she continued for many days doing this, and Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit indwelling her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very moment. We've got a demonically possessed Slave girl who's oppressed by the system and possessed by a demon, rescued by the name and the authority of Jesus. Let me tell you everything you need to know about demons in 90 seconds. Demons are real. They're fallen angels. Okay, um, he, Angels are in order, <clears throat> not a race. You know, human beings are part of a, a race, a species. And we reproduce, you know, one at a time. Unless you're Jonathan and Candace, they reproduce two two at a time. Uh, that'd be human beings. Uh, angels are 
another type of created moral creature. They're real. They're spirit beings, but they're in order. They don't reproduce like we do. They're, they were all created at once. And depending on what Christian thinker you're talking to, the total number of angels, one-third of them, along with Lucifer, who we call Satan now, rebelled against God. Now, depending on who you're talking to, that rebellion took place either between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, but it's not mentioned there, or between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, but it's not mentioned there, or before Genesis 1-1. But whenever that happened, it did. One-third of all the angels rebelled against God under Lucifer's kind of uh, catalytic leadership, and we now call them demons. I like to call them fallen angels because there's all kinds of unnecessary, I think, cultural baggage connected with the term demon, but I'm not opposed to it, but I prefer fallen angels. So we've got uh, spirit beings that are uh, part of the team of Satan. And what does Satan do? He opposes and tries to uh, give you counterfeits to what God has for you. So Satan is not necessarily trying to turn everybody into an atheist. He's just trying to turn as many people as possible into religious people that don't believe Jesus is the Savior. And there are a lot of religious people out there out of the 7.2 billion people on the earth right now that uh, are just like that. They're nice people. They're trying to do the best thing they can for their family. But they believe anything about Jesus except that he's the exclusive Savior of the world. Now, demons, fallen angels, can possess unbelievers. They do not possess every unbeliever, but they can possess unbelievers under certain circumstances. I'm personally convinced that demons cannot possess any believer under any circumstance, even if they're carnal. We can be influenced and encouraged by demonic activity around us. We can't be possessed. So, you know, Flip Wilson, I think Ben Ben doesn't like to brag, but I mean, he'll tell you, Flip Wilson was his your favorite theologian for a long time and flip wilson made a career out of saying what the devil made me do it you know Uh, the devil doesn't really make believers do anything but he's going to encourage you to by the way the devil himself uh, lucifer is a fallen angel he's super powerful super intelligent super malignant but he can only be one place at one time and he doesn't spend a lot of time in duncan for the last eight years he's been in mainly in washington dc but that's a whole different thing uh, that's my opinion as a theologian. I could be wrong. Uh, in the same way that uh, fallen angels can possess unbelievers, uh, fallen angels who possess unbelievers can reproduce all kinds of physical and psychological symptoms. That doesn't mean that uh, the Bible denies the germ theory of disease. I, I personally believe in the germ theory of disease. I think most diseases are caused by germs and other, you know, malicious factors that you can explain medically. There it is possible for demonically possessed individuals to have symptoms that look like organic diseases or psychological diseases. And in some cases, a demon-possessed person won't be sick, but they'll have supernatural strength, right? Uh, we see the guy that Jesus interacts with that the change couldn't contain him because he had a supernatural strength. And here we've got a, a gal who, for whatever reasons, has been possessed by a demon 
and she's able to accurately predict the future. Now, I don't think Satan knows the future. I don't think demons know the future. I think they're so smart, they can really make very accurate estimates about things that will happen in the future. And I think they probably have a 90% uh, you know, uh, percentage of getting the right estimates. So if you've got somebody, somebody just recently asked me, at the end of a college class, you know, you, you, when you teach college, you get these wonderful high-level intellectual discussions with students. And at the end of a class, I'm not making this up, uh, two th- Tuesday nights ago, a student came up to me, waited till everybody left, and he said, I got, I got something I need to ask you. And I said, great, what is it? He said, if you were a superhero, what superpower would you like to have? I'm not making that up. And we had a long discussion about that, because, you know, I mean, I didn't want to make a choice, man, I'm telling you. But uh, if I could predict the future... Uh, I would love that, uh, but, but I can't. But this gal has been able to successfully predict enough things for individual clients that her masters have arranged for her to interact with. They're all making a lot of money. Of course, she's not making a lot of money because she's being uh, oppressed and uh, uh, exploited. But notice uh, that she's following these uh, these missionaries around and seemingly saying very nice things about them. In fact, she's saying nice things about them. She's just saying, and it's not her. It's the demon within her who's freaking out, saying these men are servants of the real God, not Apollo, Jupiter, Zeus, etc., but of the real God. They're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. That's kind of weird for a demon possessing a slave girl to say. But when you're uh, freaked out out of your uh, ability to process intellectually, sometimes Demons will say strange things. Hold your place. Go to Mark chapter 1. There are a couple different times during the ministry of Christ we see demon-possessed people uh, interacting with him and the demon saying very affirming things about Jesus because I think they're scared spitless. And they just, uh, I guess, trying to mediate their punishment. I think they're assuming since he's there, they're going to be immediately cast in the lake of fire. The demons are. So they're freaking out over that in the case of the ministry of Jesus. Look at uh, Mark one twenty one. This is uh, early in the ministry of the Lord, obviously, in uh, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Mark one twenty one. Uh, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his teaching them as one having authority and not like the scribes would just quote different commentaries. Uh, Jesus actually taught the text. Uh, just then, there was a man in their synagogue with, possessed with an unclean spirit, a demon, a fallen angel. And he, that is the unclean spirit, cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Meaning him and his kind, the demons. I thought we had more time to play with before the ultimate reckoning of the demons. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, you're getting a demon saying Jesus is the Holy One, the Messiah of God, which is true, right? But, you know what? If you're running for president, and the KKK comes out and endorses you, is that something you're going to brag about? Is that something you're going to want everybody to know? Hey, vote for me. The KKK likes me, right? If you're a... a uh, a uh, candidate for president, and the uh, destroy the American Republic, and the sooner the better group says, 
We support you. Are you going to embrace that kind of an endorsement? Of course not. So Jesus says to this demon who's identifying who he is out of sheer stark terror, assuming the demon's time is up straight to the lake of fire, Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him, talking to the spirit. Same kind of thing in Act. Go back to Acts 16. You've got the demon within the girl. The girl's not doing this. The demon's doing it. I think the demon is just freaked out. These guys are specific about who Jesus is, and demons hate Jesus, and they hate the name of Jesus, but they've known Jesus personally because they were created at some point, uh, some of us think well before Genesis 1-1. They definitely fell no later than Genesis 2 and 3, and they've interacted with Jesus personally in spirit dynamics before human beings came on the, uh, on the scene, and so they know exactly who he is. There's no doubt about it, and I think him or his message being proclaimed so clearly was very threatening. So out of sheer stark terror, assuming that they're going to be summarily, or in this case, this guy, this demon's going to be summarily thrown in the lake of fire, they're kind of, they speak better than they, they probably should. But Paul is not happy to get this kind of endorsement. And notice what he does. Uh, he just says this in verse 18. Look, Russell. He doesn't get any incense. He doesn't start chanting. He doesn't walk around the person. He doesn't start beating up the person. Uh, if you go with most modern novels or movies today, exorcism tends to be a subject a lot of people are interested in. But let's just say that the Bible does not talk about exorcisms as evolving involving elaborate rituals and incantations, uh, etc. Uh, what does Paul do here? He just commands the demon in the name of Jesus Christ to come out, and that happens. Now, you know, there's this, the incident during the ministry of Jesus where he's praying and they interact with, the, the, the twelve interact with a demon-possessed guy, and uh, they can't get the demon to come out. And, in fact, uh, people complain when Jesus shows up, hey, your guys here couldn't help him, you know, what's the problem? And Jesus says, well, this type can't come out without fasting and prayer. So there, there, there may be hard cases where just a simple command is not uh, all that's required. You've got to be where you need to be spiritually to, to make that command uh, after much prayer and fasting. But you don't ever see the elaborate kind of stuff you saw like in the movie The Exorcist, which I still haven't seen. But I remember shortly after Debbie and I got married, we lived in Houston at the time, the, the movie The Exorcist, and I bet if you watched it now compared to Chucky the 13th and all the stuff they've got now, and that was 50 years ago too, wasn't it? Uh, you know, it seemed very mild, but every uh, morning when I drive Debbie to work before I'd go to school, uh, for a couple of weeks, the local Houston radio news would talk about how many people fainted at the exorcist and how long the line was. Some of you who are older might remember that, I don't know, but... Uh, the, you know, the, I guess her, the demonically possessed girl, her head spins around and all kinds of stuff comes out of the various, you know, orifices of her body and stuff like that. But you don't see stuff like that in scripture. But I will say this, just the name of Jesus is what's required and that's what we should claim. The name meaning the power, the person, the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. Demons hate Jesus, they hate the name of Jesus, unless of course, they can get you out of sloppiness or malice to use the name of Jesus to punctuate your sentences, and you ain't important enough to do that, Clay. You're very important to me. Love you in the Lord, but you're not important enough to use Jesus to punctuate your sentences. I'm not accusing you. I'm actually accusing you. No, no, I'm not accusing anybody. I haven't heard you do it. 
But I mean, I think they love to hear that. If you're going to use his name like something you can use to manipulate your environment. And frankly, I think some uh, television preachers, they don't use the name of Jesus as a cuss word, but they use his name as if you send me money, I can manipulate his name to give you what you want. I think that's the same kind of problem, in my opinion, but it's not good. All right, let's look at uh, from the salvation of the businesswoman, the deliverance of a slave girl, to the salvation of a prison guard. Let's read verses 19 through 24 as we see uh, the first part of this incident in the aftermath of Paul exorcising the uh, demon that uh, possessed this gal. But before I do that, i got a joke. This is a joke alert. Y'all ready for the joke alert? What happened to the guy who did not pay his exorcist? He got repossessed. Yeah. I didn't write that. I found it on the internet and just plugged it in there. So, you know, sometimes those work, sometimes they don't. You know, what can I say? Okay. Look at uh, verses 19 through 24. So, in the aftermath of this uh, exorcism, which is very unelaborated, just I command you, boom, and he, he leaves. But when her masters, right, she's a slave girl, they're exploiting her ability, previous ability, and she can't predict the future anymore because the demon inside of her was, was really good at guessing what's going to happen, he's gone. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit, making money off of her supernatural ability to analyze events, was gone, They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace, agora, agoraphobia, fear the marketplace, agora is the Greek word for marketplace, before the authorities, the local civic authorities. And when they brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men, Paul and Silas, now where Timothy and Luke are, they're probably on the other side of the city that day doing ministry, but Paul and Silas are the epicenter of all this. These men, those two guys, Paul and Silas, are throwing our city into confusion. Is that hyperbole a little bit? When people get mad at you and are really exercised, they tend to exaggerate. You just expect it. Being Jews. Now we're going to play the anti-Semitic card, which works today really well. Boy, it's the dirty Jews that are all the problem. Uh, And they seldom are. Uh, And they're not dirty either. They're not dirtier than any of us are. And are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept, observe, being Roman citizens. Man, that's pretty bad. They're bad banditos there, aren't they? Paul and Silas, better watch out. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them, just ripped their clothes off, and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Now, that was considered to be much more uh, lenient than being stoned or beaten with 40 lashes, which would kill you. But these are kind of flexible bamboo-type rods. I know they don't have bamboo in Macedonia. I know that. But, the you know, something like that. And, uh, you know, yesterday, one of the joys of having grandkids is one word, Dollar Tree. Because they don't know that all I'm doing is giving them $2, $1 apiece, and for 45 minutes, they're endlessly fascinated because you can buy anything you want in the store, Cooper. So he has to look at everything. But uh, uh, what he ended up with yesterday was a rubber snake. Now, if you had asked me, would his grandmother let us walk out of Dollar Tree with a rubber snake? I would have bet, and I'm not a betting man except once a year when I go to Cult R Us in Reno, Nevada. But that's just something different. 
But I would have bet everything, I would have bet the house, Olga, that there's no way, me, yeah, that she would let him walk out with a rubber snake. Because I see that as just kind of a rubber whip to use on his brother or his grandfather. <laughs> That's what I saw walking out of the store. She was totally for it, for some strange reason. We, we tried to talk him into something different, but we couldn't, so boom, we got that. And, uh, yeah, so, um, and the great thing is, I actually had a point for that. Uh, you know, maybe this, maybe this is what it was. So anyway, uh, yeah, so, you know, we gave them both a dollar, and the first time we did this a couple months ago, we gave them a dollar, they found something else, and he found a non-snake thing to buy. And he walks up there, and we put the toy up there, and then we said, hey, uh, Cooper, put your dollar on the counter, and put takes it all on the counter, and then, boom, they, you know, wrap it up, and we walk out, we walk out to the car, and Cooper says, hey, she took my dollar. <laughs> this time, he understood the drill, so, you know, he, he knew that wasn't coming back. So, yeah, we put it in a bag, and, you know, Peter got something benign, and Cooper's got this six-foot snake he's bringing around his head, and he's going like that. And uh, I remember uh, one of the worst spankings I can remember as a kid. I uh, We went to something similar. went to the dime store. And for some reason, my mother let me buy this long rubber sword that had kind of uh, inside had something stiff to make it hard. And I love that sword. Of course, I wanted to use it on my sisters, but I couldn't get away with that. So I just kind of pretended I was a pirate for a couple of days. Then Dad came home, and I did something stupid. He got mad at me. And he sees the sword, and he used that to spank me. And that... Man, that hurt. And what I didn't tell him was after I got over that, I took the sword and put it in the garbage can. I did not want him to ever find that sword again. So uh, so I think about things like that when it says uh, they were beaten with rods. But all the commentators say, well, this is much less severe than 49, uh, four, uh, 39 lashes or uh, being stoned and stuff. So you can cut, survive this, but it would leave some some painful uh, injuries that needed to be sanitized as, in fact, was going to ha- have happened. So anyway, yeah, so they had them beaten with rods, verse 23, and when they struck them with many blows, they uh, threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, and he, because these are high-priority you know, prisoners now, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison, today we call that maximum security, and fastened their feet in the stocks. So these guys have been beaten up. They've got open uh, injuries on their body. Their feet are in stocks. And so when you go to verses 25 and 26, the original jailhouse rocked, with no apologies to Elvis there, uh, you, obviously they're going to be sad and questioning God's existence and think, wanting to get out of the ministry, right? Because that's what happens when, when you don't get what you want in the ministry. You just quit, right? And when things get tough, quit. Uh, that's not the apostolic approach. Uh, verse 25. But about midnight, that night, Paul and Silas, they're awake. They're not whining, crying, doubting, pouting, dropping, outing. They're praying and singing hymns of praise. <laughs> that reminds me of something we saw back in chapter 5 real quick. Go to chapter 5, verse 40. In chapter 5, all of the apostles are arrested and threatened. But look what happens. In Acts chapter 5, verse 40, this is one that the name it and claim it, you know, word faith uh, people never will tell you can happen to you. But uh, look at Acts chapter 5, verse 40. Uh, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them with rods and ordered them, same kind of injury, 
not to speak in the name of Jesus, then released them. So they, the apostles, having been just beaten up, went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing, not feeling sorry for themselves, rejoicing what? Why, Steve? Why are they rejoicing? See verse 41? That they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They thought, wow, it could be better than that. They've actually noticed we're believers, you know. So go back to Acts 16. Same kind of vibe for me when I read verse 25. But after midnight, or about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying, uh, singing hymns of praise to God. The prisoners are listening. And then suddenly, and this is a miraculous earthquake. If you had a, a machine to measure the Richter scale, you would have had a real earthquake, but it's supernaturally timed and caused, uh, such that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. Immediately, all the doors were open. Everyone's chains are unfastened. And when the jailer awoke, he saw the prison doors open, and he realized the jig's up. You know, maximum security is no security. Obviously, all these guys have run to the hills. He hasn't checked it out yet. He just assumes that. So what's he going to do? He's going to kill himself because he's he's a goner. He'd really kill himself and be tortured and killed for being a bad jailer, even though it's not his fault. So he draws his sword and about to commit suicide. Kill himself, supposing, just assuming the prisoners had escaped. That would be a reasonable assumption. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. Paul's apparently talked him into staying. They must have really liked uh, Paul and Silas' singing, right? That's the power of music there, James. And uh, he, the uh, jailer, called for some lanterns to come in. They rushed in. They trembled uh, with fear. And they fell down, or he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out of where they were, the, the, uh, the maximum security area, probably into his office, uh, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Let's call that the ultimate question. Because according to Hebrews 9, despite all the wonders of medical science, the death rate is 100%. It's pointed on the man wants to die, and after that, you've got to do reckoning with God. After that, the judgment. So he's that close to killing himself. He's looked at the precipice of death, and that's the one thing he wants to know. Sounds a lot to me, Joe, like the terrorist next to Christ on the cross, right? Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's all the guy says. Okay? And he'd broken all ten commandments multiple times. And what did Jesus say? Wish you'd caught me last week. There's a long list of things you got to do. And, you know, repent, confess, be baptized, do this, quit that, walk the aisle, sign a card. He didn't say that. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. You've expressed saving faith. You're a sinner. You can't fix it. Jesus can. I want you to. That's saving faith. It's all of grace. Sounds a very similar kind of thing. And uh, Russell, this is the only place in the Bible where somebody just point blank asked the question. The, this question is answered in many different ways in the Bible. But here's the one place somebody just asked an apostle, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas, in unison probably, say, Pray the Lord will open your heart. No. The guy's heart's open. God's opened the heart. He just needs to know who to put his faith in. Believe in the Lord Jesus that we've been singing about. I have a feeling he was listening in on the uh, singing and the conversations Paul and Silas were having. And you'll be saved in your whole household. This isn't just for adult men like the Roman culture might preach or teach or sell. Your whole household. Whoever believes shall be saved. Now, the word for believe in Greek, pistuo, is not just uh, mental assent to the existence of Jesus, but it refers to an act of the mind and the will. 
Your mind is kind of what you think. Your will is what you choose. And saving faith is active, receptive trust. Because I'm a sinner and I'm guilty before God and because I can't fix it, I put my faith in Jesus because He's the Son of God. He died to pay my sin debt and He rose again. I put my faith in Him. I put active, receptive trust in Him as my Savior. Uh, to put it simply, because Jesus died to pay for your sins, you don't have to die in your sins or with your sins counting against you. What God is offering in the gospel is to wipe out your total sin debt and on top of that put the righteous standing of Christ to your account. That's justification by faith. But the, the basis of salvation is the death and resurrection of Christ. On the cross, hanging between heaven and earth, Christ dies and pays for our sin. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Three days later, what happens? Literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection. A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one, Ron's the only one who can. But Buddha can't do that for you. Muhammad can't do that. Joseph Smith can't do that for you. Uh, only the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ can do that for you. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul specifically says the gospel is the truth that Christ died for our sins instead of us in our place to pay our sin debt in toto. And the scriptures predicted that and he was buried at room temperature, which validates that. Two types of validation, scriptural and scientific. And Jordan, uh, he didn't stay dead. He's not just a virtuous martyr. He was resurrected. You can't reproduce this in a biology or chemistry or physics lab. But it actually happened. He rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and according to science, empiricism. He was seen over a period of 40 days by multiple people, multiple places, groups, as many as 500 saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. So when we see this answers, it's very simple, but there's just a huge amount of theology and there's a huge amount of the program of God welded into this uh, believing is not, I believe there was a guy named Jesus who died on the cross. I believe there was a guy named Jesus who died on the cross and came back alive again, however that worked. It's you as a sinner putting all your chips on him. It's trusting him. Uh, you know, this is, there's no perfect analogy, but, you know, I could say, you know, I, I believe this is a chair. Believe in the chair. I believe that, I believe that's a chair. I don't think it's a tuba. I'm not an expert. I'm pretty sure it's not a tuba. But that's just mental assent. I haven't put faith in it yet in the sense of pistuo, the Greek term of active receptive trust. I believe that's a chair that could hold me up. Uh, yesterday I was up here uh, later in the afternoon and I missed a chair. Came down on my... Uh, Cooper's in here stacking songbooks because I was desperately needed to be done so we could undo that this morning. I put him to work, you know. There's no free ride. There's no gravy train for Cooper at Pawpaw's house. But yeah, I missed Maxine's chair in the dark. I was going to save the church three pennies by not turning on the light. I missed it. Fell on my uh, tailbone. I thought, man, I, this is great. I'm going to be paralyzed here and Cooper's going to find me. But but yeah. Now, so I could say, well, I believe this chair could hold me up. But if I miss it, you know, I didn't put my faith in, in, in the right object. But I believe this chair can hold me up. In fact, I, I believe it could hold me up if I stood on it. Now, the decoration committee might get mad at me. But yeah, now I'm trusting on the I'm trusting the chair to hold me up. Have you trusted Jesus like that? Have you trusted Brad will not bump the microphone again? 
Faith is only as good as its object. If you believe I'm not going to do that as a faulty object, but if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, rose again, he's sufficient and wants to save you, and you've put all your chips on him, you've dared to trust him to be your savior, he immediately, well, what, what do you say to the thief on the cross? You might make it. Uh, dying, let's find out. Now, he says, today you'll, you'll be with me in paradise. And here, look what happens in the aftermath of this guy coming to faith. Look at verse 32. Um, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he, the jailer, took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds. The whole household's baptized. Then he brought them to his house, set real, not prison food before them. And rejoice greatly having believed in God. Not his existence, but the real God as opposed to Apollo, you know, or uh, Dionysus or the Greek gods. Along with his whole household. Now look at verse 35 through 40. Some really neat lessons here real quick on the fly. And uh, when the next day came, now by the way, after this, come out, let's wash your wounds, meet my family, baptize. They did a lot that night. Have a nice meal. The jailer takes them back to the jail. It just wouldn't look right in front of the mayor the next morning for Paul and Silas have spent the night in this house. So they're going through protocol. I don't think they probably put their feet in stocks this time. And the jail is not in really great secure shape. But they're back in the jail at night such that, watch this, when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, release these men. People say, why? I'm not sure. Maybe they think we've shown them enough. You know, they're itinerant ministers. We beat them up. I don't think they're going to cause us any more problems. They're obviously going to leave as soon as we let them go, like scared rabbits. So I don't think they saw Paul and Silas as a long-term threat. And so the jailer, who I'm sure is thrilled, thinking, "Hey, we don't have to. We're not going to press charges." I think he's saying, "Man, Paul's going to love this, right?" Look what it's surprising the way Paul reacts here. Uh, he comes to Paul and says, hey, great news. The chief magistrates, the guys who had you beaten up and arrested last night, uh, have sent to release you. You can go, you can leave, you're good. Can you believe they changed their mind that quickly, Deborah? So what does Paul say? Praise God, we're out of here. You know, good luck. Uh, we don't believe in luck, but good luck to you as we leave, right? But Paul said to them, hold your horses here, bud. They have beaten us in public without trial. That's against Roman law. Uh, we're Roman citizens. They can't do that at all to us. They've thrown us in prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? They've broken a lot of rules themselves. They're in big legal trouble. No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. Okay? The policemen reported these words to chief magistrates, and how did they react? They're afraid. Those guys are Roman citizens? Oh, my gosh. We're in a lot of trouble here. And they came and appealed to Paul and Silas. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Please go, please go, please get away. We don't, we don't want to hurt you anymore. Uh, and so Paul and Silas came out of the prison. But they don't just sneak out of town. They go back to the house of Lydia, kind of connect with the new believers there, encourage them, and then they departed. Uh, this is pretty cool, Russell. Should believers know their rights today? Should believers in America know your rights under the law and insist on them? Absolutely. Uh, now, you know, uh, when you realize we're giving Planned Parenthood a half a billion dollars of our tax money every year, uh, you know, it kind of makes you physically ill. 
But I don't pay a half a million, I don't pay a half a billion dollars of tax. I prefer to think that my tax money is going to, uh, Matt Sanford's boots or helmets or, uh, maybe ammunition for David Moore's, uh, you know, weapon or whatever like that. But should believers today pay federal income tax to a government that's clearly bloated, very inefficient, totally corrupt, and that supports things like Planned Parenthood? Should we pay our federal income tax? Yeah, we should. Should we submit to our human authority in the government? Yeah, we should, unless it's a sin to. That's Romans 13. But should Christians within the law, consistent with the tax code, which is whatever, more words in the Bible, according to Ted Cruz, and he doesn't lie, so I'm sure he's right, uh, do everything we can to reduce our tax liability lib- uh, uh, legally, to have more money for ourselves, our family, and maybe for TBF, pastor appreciation next year or whatever? Uh, I say, yeah. And yeah, for ministers, we get to designate a certain amount of our uh, compensation as housing allowance, and they've got rules what you can uh, count and what you can't. But James and I both do that, and that chunk of our compensation is not under uh, is not under any tax liability, state or federal. And then also um, IRA. Uh, you know, if you're in a denom- denomination, denomination kind of does something for you. Uh, some of the church sends money for their minister's uh, retirement program. When you're independent free agent, we don't get that. But, uh, you know, I, I put money into an IRA. Whatever the maximum is, I do that every year. And that amount of money is not uh, liable for uh, uh, any tax liability. And if I knew of any other legal loopholes, I would use those too. So if you know of something I don't, please let me know. But uh, it's pretty cool. Paul is saying, look. You can't just throw us around. I don't think he's thinking about himself. I think he's thinking about the status quo of the Christians in Philippi. If we let them run a bulldozer over us and not apply the rules to us, they're going to do the same thing to the people we're going to leave behind. I think he's thinking more about them than himself here. Okay, uh, Let's take this to heart. Uh, the fact that Jesus is the answer to the ultimate question is based on a lot of wonderful truths. A couple I'll mention in passing here as we close. Number one, the reason that we believe in Jesus and he saves us is because he's the Savior and we is the savees. Okay? That means he does all the work and we don't do anything meritorious. He does all the work. Uh, we believe in him because believing assists, as Luther said, the empty hand that receives the merits of a Savior. Uh, therefore, he deserves all the praise. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. There's nothing for us to brag about. Also, saving faith is a rational act. And they didn't mention efficacious grace to this prison guard, even though they believed in efficacious grace. They didn't use that term, of course. But they realized God has convicted this guy. He's opened his heart. And they just say, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Uh, saving faith is a rational act. It's not a meritorious work. It's art. As many as received him, John 1.12 says, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe, pistuo, uh, ace, autan, who believe in him, believe in his name. Uh, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. I'm guilty. It's not anybody else's fault but mine. You died for my sins. You rose again. I trust you. I put my weight on you. I stand in the chair of the person and work of the crucified, risen Savior. That's the secret of life eternal. It's not really a secret. 
If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ in that way, you've been religious, you've been a nice person, you believe a lot of nice things about Jesus, but you never trusted in Him completely and solely as your Savior based on who He is and what He did, today can be the day of salvation. For most of us who are believers, we need to live like we actually believe this stuff, which we do. I think that would make us, I think, more prioritized in our lives. I think it makes us a little bit more gracious to people on the fringes of our lives, on the little things that don't really matter. And I think it would allow us to be the the seed corn of what I hope is going to be a great national revival. Right now, we tend to think the church is pretty inept uh, often. Not necessarily this one, but this the capital C church. But statistics are very encouraging. Uh, 80,000 people a day on this globe are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 10,000 on average. On a good day, it's like 87,000. But on average, it's 80,000 people a day are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And 10,000 of those are coming from Muslim backgrounds. That's something ISIS can't stop. ISIS can kill those people, but he can't stop the Spirit of God. And uh, we need to pray for national revival. And if it happens, it will start as believers uh, start living out the faith that we profess. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do pray you might be pleased to work in the hearts and, and lives of everyone in this room. And if anyone's not trusted Jesus Christ as you've convicted and opened their heart to see and believe, draw them to yourself. Let them see that Jesus is the answer to the ultimate question. And let them put their faith and trust in him alone. For those of us who believed in Christ, forgive us for um, going secret service or becoming kind of chameleons too often. Uh, Without being needlessly offensive or clunky, let us be consistent in the way we think and live, whether it's on uh, Wednesday night at church or Thursday afternoon at a board meeting or on a high school campus or college campus. Let us, if it be your your purpose, be part of what you're going to use to catalyze a great national revival. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.